This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hello, welcome to EMS Talk with Mac and Miller. We're broadcasting today from our home <laughs> studios uh, on NPR. <laughs> <laughs> are we? <laughs> Mac and Miller, huh? Uh, are you sure it's not yeah. click and clack? <laughs> Don't innovate like my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Don't innovate like my brother. <laughs> God, that's awful. No, I'm, uh, uh, I'm Spencer. That's Chris. And this is... EMS 2020. <laughs> hey, you got the pause, man. You did a great job there. I, I normally I just sit back here and go wrong, 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 wrong. wrong, wrong. Uh, but no, today, yes, I think you did it. I think you did it good. You got the pause, you know, all that stuff. Um, uh, if anybody is wondering about the reference we made earlier, um, <laughs> so it, it's kind of a funny story. Do you mind if I tell it? Oh, dude, go ahead. Yeah. All right. So there used to be a um, show on NPR called Car Talk. It's very, very popular. Uh, one of the most popular radio shows actually of all time. And it was basically just these guys people called in. They were auto mechanics and they gave advice. And even if you knew Jack about cars and didn't care, they were entertaining to listen to. And so it's kind of like this show in a way, because <laughs> we have listeners that don't know anything about this. They love listening to yeah. us and we appreciate that. So one day, so we were looking at our numbers recently and at like, and here's the thing. Our numbers are good and they're getting better uh, exponentially fast. And it's amazing. Um, admittedly, we have a long road to travel, but uh, we were kind of feeling our Wheaties and probably over congratulating ourselves. And it might have been mentioned amongst ourselves that, uh, yeah, we're pretty much the car talk of EMS, at which I, we laughed because we're like, yeah. we're not. We're, we're <laughs> obviously not. I, yeah. I'll say I, I played the EMS drinking game, but like only like two minutes into a show. So I didn't die of alcohol poisoning. Right. And but you uh, still got pretty drunk. <laughs> Yeah, I got there. And so I sent Chris this like long message about like, this is where our show is going to go. We're going to have people calling in no and God. asking us for advice. Like, hey, my scene's not working right. And we're going to do like, oh, man. All right. Uh, you know, what's your PIC doing? Is it working right? And, you know, and the person <laughs> would go like, well, how would I know? And I was like, what Chris will do is he'll ask like, well, is it making noise? <laughs> and if it's not making noise, then you got to replace that part. Yeah, you know? you, you, you've got <laughs> so, place that yeah um which by the way you know someone's at a good level of intoxication uh when they slur their words you know they're at a really good level of intoxication when they slur their text messages too and that's kind of <laughs> uh, so um but yeah so so we kind of made this joke and then we recently had a really amazing uh opportunity to talk to some students from a paramedic class uh and uh, just to kind of sit there and, and answer questions. Uh, this is what happens when you email us and interact uh, with us, by the way. We can't guarantee we'll answer uh, everybody's request, but we had an opportunity and we said, fuck it, let's do it. We got some time. And so, yeah, we just did a Zoom chat uh, with some uh, with some students that listened to us. Uh, and they opened up with one of them saying, yeah, you guys are kind of like the uh, car talk of EMS. And we're just like, no way. It made our day. I, I actually thought, because I jumped on late, I thought Chris had put the guy up to it. And oh, I was no. like, whoa, hold on. Did you did you do this? Like, yeah, there was it was it was just such an, a, a funny coincidence. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, we uh, we don't think highly of ourselves at all. That's the, the bottom <laughs> I don't know. line. Maybe we should, though. It seems to be going well. But, you know, with that, follow us on social media. We are EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook, EMS 2020 show on Instagram. And please send us an email uh, just like those students did at EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. You know who else sent us an email? The person who gave us today's call. That's how it got featured. Uh, so, yeah, that's how you do it. Send us your stories, requests, whatever you may have. Uh, if you want to interact with us, social media email that's how you do it we are pretty responsive too so uh give it a go um yeah let's see outside of that today's call i think is going to be interesting so full disclosure normally uh whoever is not bringing the call is pretty blind uh to what's going on we kind of like to go on that adventure with you guys today's story i have a little bit more insight i know there's some conflicts going on and i think it's going to be exciting because it's going to be a lot of discussion and um yeah I, i i think i'm ready all right. Well, let's get into the story. So, first off, as you like to, if everybody knows, we like to give you a little information on who's giving us the story. And this call was given to us by a firefighter paramedic who, at the time of this call, was working an overtime shift as a paramedic dedicated to their fire engine. They wrote in saying, at the time of this call, I was a cough four year medic. <laughs> So that's how much years of experience. Yep. (laughs) Drink up. (laughs) Send your friends car talk messages. Um, I have dubbed them Atlas for reasons Mm. that I hope will come clear later as we sort of parse through this call. Now let's talk about the system that these, that this medic is working in. This is a fire service that at the time of this call had recently expanded into taking over patient transport in their service area. So in this system, there were quite a few paramedics who didn't really have experience transporting patients suddenly thrust into the position of being transporting medics without any real additional training. And, you know, like many things, there was a plan in place in this region to help kind of try and bridge this transition uh, things and stuff and things. Uh, <laughs> basically, just imagine Darth Vader showed up and was like, I'm altering the deal pray I don't alter it further, except that there's multiple Darth Vader's altering multiple deals. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so. so so basically, is it fair to say that maybe this agency let that the ground field crews were a little bit deer in the headlights about this shift? Uh, it, it's possible. I think okay. that because that's why I'm bringing it up. I mean, it, it could matter in that it might be a, di- uh, a dynamic that plays into this call. Sure. But the field crews um, may, may have found this jarring, to say the least. This, this I, shift was maybe a bit jarring. I, it, it's very possible. I mean, so here's the thing. Like, if you talk to a lot of non-transporting medics who either have been out of the transporting game for a while or who never were in it, it's the same job as a transporting medic, but with different priorities. Um, Good friend of the show, Q-Tip, describes it like this. Transporting medics have the bigger picture and more time. You have to assess, treat, reassess, and and you have time for all of that. And, you know, and then you get notes on your work from nurses. And it's not just questions like, hey, what's the CBG? But it's usually more like in-depth treatment history questions. And if you're a good transporting medic, you'll also ask questions and have that opportunity to follow up with those doctors and nurses about how it went and what needs to be different next time. The non-transporting medics tend to focus on managing immediate life threats, triaging acuity, packaging patient for transports and more of the logistical issues such as like how to best move the patient, whether they can get back in service or they need to send a rider, how to pick up those riders. What should they do if there's a fire while they're down a person? 
those kinds of things. Like, they are great at fixing the first five minutes, but they don't really have much experience managing the next 15. And additionally, there isn't the same opportunity for improvement with non-transporting medics because they're not put in a position to get all that feedback from the nurses and doctors. And, you know, to be fair, many transporting medics also don't take advantage of that opportunity. That's very true. (laughs) They're more likely to have those opportunities, we'll say, thrust upon them because when a doctor calls you a fuck up a couple of times, you most people <laughs> tend to do a little introspection. That's and fair. I wholeheartedly agree with uh, Q-Tip on that. Now, I've always been a transporting medic, so I don't know the other side of it. But Q-Tip was both. So yeah, I'll um I'll chime in a little bit. I I agree. I I, th- I think that Q-Tip is is spot on. Um, but just like Q-Tip alluded to, is that a lot of transport medics don't necessarily take that opportunity. Uh, I I would add one caveat. Maybe I maybe this is where I would I would differ uh, from Q-Tip's assessment. Is that I would say even in the transport theater, and, and this will vary system to system, but especially if you're in like a busy urban system, even in the the transport things uh, or side of these things. Um, we still don't get the follow up that we really need to know uh, what, what we're sure. doing. I mean, the opportunity is there, but if you're in a busy system, it's not. And like I've said on the show before, a, a lot of us kind of tend to assume like if I drop off a patient and I don't hear back, everything was fine. Uh, mm-hmm. th- that's not true. That's not true at all. You can actually do a pretty bad job and they're just not going to call you. Like they're just not going to take the time to do that. And so unless you actively seek it out, even in the transport realm of things, you still may not get uh, that opportunity. However, like you pointed out, even having the time from the scene to the hospital is a huge advantage uh, over, you know, jobs where you don't have that time from scene to hospital. So I definitely agree with Q-Tip on this. I think a uh, really good point. And it's also one of those things where when I roll up on scene, uh, a lot of the fire crews I work with, I'm pretty relieved when they're there first. And a lot of transport medic jobs, you're usually second on. And uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of nice because they're really good at the at that first 10% of the call. And transport medics, we're really good at the remainder, uh, you know, so it's just, yeah, Th- that's a really excellent point. Yeah, I will do my assessments a lot slower than the team of firefighters will, because mm-hmm. that's not often the situation that I'm in. So, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, there are several stations in this uh, municipality service area. Each station has an ALS staffed ambulance, as well as an engine and or ladder truck, with a couple of those stations having some additional ALS squads. Um, the, these stations might run about eight calls a shift per station between uh, the fire and the EMS calls. And their area is a mix of urban rural, uh, though most of the calls happen in the urban area. Go figure. Uh, there's a hospital in their area. It's a level two trauma center and it has PCI services. And I'd like to point out before we get into the story that Atlas does come with experience from transporting service prior to working at this agency and was tasked with helping their fellow responders in this transitional period. So let's dive into the call. Atlas and three EMTs are working their fire shift and they are dedicated to the engine. One of the EMTs is the officer for the shift. I'm calling them Bob. Another is the EMT driver operator, whom I'm calling Bob 2, a.k.a. John C. McGinley. You now have to say that every time you refer to this person, you now have to say that entire name. Bob 2, a.k.a. John C. McGinley. <laughs> yes. Okay. Done. Dedicated. Um, 
<laughs> is he not mentioned other- again? Is that why you're so like, yeah, that's pretty much the one time I say his name. It could be a thing. Um, and another <laughs> is essentially a brand new EMT who I'm calling Michael Bolton. Uh, Michael Bolton Bolton was recently brought onto the shift and, again, is very new. I, I believe, if I'm correct, this is their first day yes. at this agency. So, Oh, wow. So are again, they, well, well, hang on. First day, oh, like they, they are in training. Like th- this is a, this is a, an FTEP uh, phase or is this like their first day outside of training or academy or FTEP? I believe I, if I read the email correctly, this is their first day. Like they were, Period. They, they had a, they had a meeting with the battalion chief and then came to like, came to the station. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, hey. <laughs> welcome. <Yeah. laughs> and Glad you made this EMS 2020 call. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right. So this is, of course, uh, an OT shift for Atlas. And so this is not a crew that they have really worked together with before. And I know I've touched on this before, but the unofficial lesson here to avoid becoming a story on EMS 2021, 22, 23 (laughs) is don't pick up overtime shifts. Bad things happen. Yeah, (laughs) but let's cut right to what happened. So it's early on in their shift, approximately 800 hours and 31 seconds. Uh, They are dispatched to a private residence for a report of a 58 year old patient reported to be unconscious. The 911 caller is the patient's spouse. Hmm. The crew climb into their engine and depart code three for the scene, which is about 10 minutes away from their station. I don't know why I gave a curious hmm to the caller as the spouse. That's like half the calls. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I'm like, no, I spouse murdered, spouse murdered them. I know yeah. it. Spouse did it, now. it. Spouse did it. Yep. <laughs> In the library with the candlestick. With, I, I was going to say candlestick. Mm-hmm. We're synced up. Everybody Beautiful. does, because it's candlestick and revolver. Those are the two that, every, that everybody remembers. In fact, I challenge you, Spencer, right now to name another weapon in Clue. Was there an, a rope? Oh, yeah, shit. Good job. There was right. a rope. Nope. Yep. Right. Thanks. I stand corrected. Right. <laughs> I'm sleep deprived. Still got it. <laughs> All right. Now, the ambulance for the station would typically also be dispatched along with them, but it's actually currently out on, on another transport at the time of this call. So a different ambulance from a different station will have to respond to their area, which likely means there's going to be a delay in the transporting unit's arrival. You might be asking, how did Atlas take this news? Well, as Ayn Rand wrote, Atlas shrugged. <laughs> Oh, literary joke, literary that's, humor. That's <laughs> what we bring. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the pre- Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. The pregaming for this call in route was mostly instructional for the newer EMT, so Michael Bolton. Gotcha. So, about nine minutes after they depart their station, they arrive to a single-story home described as a typical abode in their area. Not gross, not super clean, but lovingly lived in. The patient's wife anxiously greets the fire crew as they arrive, and they bring in all their kits. Don't worry, Dr. Seitz, they did it. The wife directs them back to towards the bedroom where the patient is. Now, the patient is reported by the wife to be awake now. En route to the bedroom, the crew asks the wife what happened, and she reports that the patient experienced a syncopal episode after complaining about being short of breath, and that he was out for maybe 20 seconds. And when he woke up, he was saying his chest hurt. So, Chris, based on this information, what are your top three concerns for potential life threats? 
All right. So my top three. So first, right off the bat, um, this guy looks to me, and, and this is, of course, just like, I don't have any HPI. I don't have any vital signs, but these are the things that are going through my mind. I'm worried about a serious MI just kind of right off the bat. When we have someone yeah. who complains of shortness of breath and then syncopizes, but then comes back out of it. Cause the first thing you might think is like, all right, do we have a respiratory issue? And you very well could, but respiratory issues that then progress to unconsciousness very rarely self-correct to the point of the patient now being conscious, right? Um, mm -hmm. versus, mm -hmm. um, Shortness of breath can be a symptom associated with an MI without a respiratory issue. And those things can self-correct in the sense of like you can syncopize and now you're in a position where you don't require as much pressure to get blood to your brain. You're laying flat. And so that seems to kind of fit. So what I'm worried about is I have a patient who wakes says I am short of breath. I can't breathe, which is a bad sign, whether it's a respiratory problem or from an MI problem passes out for maybe 20 seconds and then wakes up with chest pain. To me, the big thing is, is, uh, is I'm thinking this guy's having a huge, uh, MI. And so I don't even know if I'd give you a top three. <laughs> that's, that, okay. that's my top yeah. one. Um, but in terms of like how this can go, my other big concerns, uh, is someone who has syncopized. We've said this on the show before, and that is this every organ in your body, every bodily function you have ultimately is to accomplish one goal, perfuse your brain. Every single one of them pick an organ somewhere along the line. What it does is contributes to perfusing your brain or protecting it or protecting systems that do perfuse your brain. And so when someone passes out, your body failed at its one job. And so what, what this tells me is it tells me that this patient who I feel is likely having an MI is bound to fail in the very uh, near future. And it's the heart that's going to fail. And that's what mm. I'm worried about. So to me, yeah. th this uh, at the first glance, I have a patient who's very likely having an MI or could be having an MI who may also code. Yeah. Because that's essentially yeah. what a syncope is, right? I mean, a code is essentially when your heart is not does not have enough uh, output uh, to generate a pulse. And for all I know, that's what happened. And that's why he syncopized. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I'll give you my top three. I, MI is definitely my top one because you know i like them um yeah. but pulmonary embolism also has a shortness of breath syncope piece and chest pain very good and then yeah. uh the other one that i you know almost always try to you know like almost always seem to forget but should be there is uh aortic dissection because mm. syncope also is a feature of that very true um all of which are bad so let's see they yeah, arrive at the bedroom. At that. <laughs> yeah, I sucked at that. I, it, I mean, I had a lot more time writing this episode to think about right. that stuff. So yeah. there is that. Yeah. Uh, they arrive at the bedroom and find the patient sitting upright in bed. They see an approximately 350 pound male looking like he's having an MI. That's Atlas's exact quote. What they mean to those who might not have yet seen this is mm -hmm. the patient the patient's skin is that ugly, dusky, MI gray color. He's severely diaphoretic, and he looks really, really uncomfortable. Um, Atlas has a strong sense that this is a patient who could potentially code at some point during his trip to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And from the description, I wholeheartedly agree. The skin don't lie. But makeup does. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they actually seem like they're blushing. <laughs> they don't seem pale at all. Uh, by the way, uh, this is where the team dynamic of EMS comes into play, and it's awesome. 
Atlas and Michael Bolton are teamed together and will be prioritizing doing their assessment patient care. Bob, EMT lieutenant for the shift, starts establishing history from the patient and wife. And the driver operator, Bob Two, a.k.a. John C. McGinley, knowing that they will need to get the patient out of the home, starts working on the logistical aspects of like clearing the space so the patient can be moved from yeah. the home. It's beautiful teamwork. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. Like, here's what I will say. I'm actually pretty happy that uh, Michael Bolton's not just sitting on the dock of the bay. He's, uh, you know, in there, part of the team. That's really good. And that means that Atlas doesn't it's, have to be the sole provider. That's what I'm love is all that about, Michael man. Bolton. That's what love I'm is all not, about. I'm not that Michael Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. then in that case, you need to get started on your TPS reports. <laughs> yes. I was worried. I was kind of worried you weren't going to get it, but I'm glad you did. No, no. All this right. is one of the most reference-heavy episodes so far, though. I mean, we start off with car talk. Now we've moved into um, Michael Bolden hits uh, and the Bobs. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the Bobs, and then of course you're going to throw some office space stuff in there too. So why not? Yep, yep. yep. Um, so Atlas starts doing their assessment. And Chris, this is my episode. A lot of these things happen in a very short window of time. We're going to start with the HPI and then move into the assessment. And everyone else, again, understanding that the crew is working together as a cohesive unit to get all this stuff done mm -hmm. at once. Yeah. So HPI, the patient reports that they were woken up from their sleep feeling short of breath. That's a bad sign, by the way. That is a bad they sign. They started to get up, but felt very weak. The patient told their wife this, but then collapsed back into bed unconscious for about 20 seconds per the wife. Mm -hmm. When they regained consciousness, not only was their shortness of breath worse, but now they had this severe anterior chest pain. It's been going on for about 10 minutes. They've never had this before. Their only medical history is chronic back pain and high blood pressure. They have no previous cardiac history, no allergies to medications. The patient's primary complaint is, I can't breathe, and we don't know the medications. You'll see why in a moment. Hmm. Okay. So let's, let's cut over to the assessment. Assessment-wise, the patient is an obese male with dusky, cool, and I'm quoting here, diaphoresis from Poseidon himself <laughs> skin. Oh, wow who is alert and oriented to person, place, time, and event. They have a rapid, strong radial pulse at a rate of about 120 a minute. They are also exhibiting rapid, shallow breathing at a rate of about 26 per minute. Lung sounds are quickly auscultated and clear in all fields. The patient is speaking in few word sentences and tripoding and is air hungry. Okay. Well, while that assessment piece is taking place, the patient is being given 324 milligrams of uh, aspirin, PO, which they are able to take. They are placed on a non-entitled CO2 cannula at 10 liters per minute and an entitled CO2 cannula uh, around that. And this is why, because some, some people go like, why do the two cannulas? Right. Um, so it turns out the entitled cannulas they sort of just blow air around the nose, not directly into the nose. There are <laughs> nasal prongs, but it turns out no air in most entitled cannulas, no air is actually going into those prongs. They just sort of hold the thing in place. It's actually going out kind of a, at the base of the nose. So if hmm. you're putting 10 liters a, a minute out there, you're just blowing 10 meters an inner into the open, like near the opening of the nares, not you're essentially actually doing into. Global. 
yeah, you're doing blow by oxygen. Um, so they wanted to make sure that this patient was getting oxygen. So they added the nasal cannula that actually does blow air into your nostrils. So you have no choice but to take it. I'm yeah. going to openly admit I did not know that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, well, did not know yeah. that until now. We, so this this changed uh, a couple of years, like a year or two ago in our service, um, where because like, we used to just have the end title cannulas, and then this information came out, and we the nurse I was working with at the station, we actually decided to test this out and see, and it turns out like yeah, that's totally the way this works. Oh wow. <laughs> Interesting. We were, we were very surprised. So I also recently learned this thing. <laughs> so, All right. Boom. Interesting. Um, so th- I, I think this is a pro move uh, so that they can get the end title. No, it's, and it's a sure great the, move. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> so uh, Atlas just knows this is going to be a STEMI and they really want to get the 12 lead done right away so that they can get the cath lab activation process started. But we have two problems. When it comes to this assessment, uh, the patient is so diaphoretic that even the limb leads will not stick on their patient. They've tried. Um, so they work to towel off the patient just to try and get the limb leads on. Um, and then problem two, the patient is Wookiee level hairy. Okay. <laughs> so a razor and actually two razors uh, are snagged to try and shave the spot where the chest leads will get placed and Atlas and Michael Bolton are working together on this process so they can get it done. As this is happening, the patient reports that they no longer can sit upright and say they want to lie down. Bob too, AKA John C. McKinley is requested to come and support the patient sitting upright so that they can keep them in that position. Um, I have thoughts about this. I'm going to go into it really quick. Yeah. So I asked why this, why they did like, Hey, why not just let the patient lay down? And Mm -hmm. they, and uh, Atlas's thought was they're having shortness of breath. I want to keep them in a position where they can continue to tripod to support those, you know, that respiratory function. Cause he is an obese male and he's worried that, you know, the work of breathing will increase as they're laying down. Yeah. I think I would just let them lay down that, yeah, I wasn't there, but that's that's my go to. So. I, I think I would, too. Um, but that that said, Atlas's Atlas's thought pattern here is not without merit. Um, yeah. While I don't believe, especially with the clear lung sounds that we just got, I don't believe this patient has a respiratory component. I believe their shortness of breath is a symptom uh, of other problems, uh, which I, I think everyone seems on board. That said, even without a respiratory component, an obese patient on their back may have some additional difficulty breathing. And this this is a patient where I can see, look, I, I want to give them as much oxygen as possible. In my, you know, reviewing this, you know, however, you know, years later uh, opinion uh, from my, you know, armchair quarterbacking the shit out of this perspective. Um, in most patients that I have seen like this, as long as they don't have a respiratory disease going on, you can pretty easily uh, overcome the 
potential for a reduction in oxygenation by putting them on their back with just by simply applying high flow oxygen. So I yeah. think in, in this case, having this patient uh, lay down is going to be fine. And also you have to remember, like, we're really worried about cerebral perfusion, right? I mean, we're always worried about that. Yes. And l- having someone lay down is one of the simplest things you can do for cerebral perfusion, um, just simply because it no, the, the heart no longer has to fight against, against gravity. So, um, I, I would say, and plus making your patient comfortable, there's, there's stuff to be said for that reduction of yeah. anxiety. There's things to be said for that. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I would have let him lay back, but anyway, moving on. Yeah. All right. Well, seconds after Bob two, AKA John C. McKinley gets behind the patient to hold them up. Atlas notices the patient's eyes start to unfocus and then just Oops. sort of roll, <laughs> roll back up into their head. And the patient is no longer breathing. And after a quick check, no longer has a palpable carotid pulse. And and just to, just to make sure we're correct here, we still don't know what rhythm the, this person's in because nothing sticks no, they, to this hairy, sweaty man. No, they they basically they've. He, so, by the way, only four minutes have passed since they said hi to when the patient died. That's a high die of four, that, which is not <laughs> a good number. I like that metric to be much higher personally. So, you know, that there's that factor. So because someone's going to be like, well, what were their vitals? What was the rhythm? Yeah, we don't know because they weren't able to get the limb leads to stick. You know, I I asked yeah. like, hey, what was the SPO2 on this guy? And I got a like a laughy face in response. Right. <laughs> because, yeah, like it's like, hey, man, they fucking died. We were trying to prioritize some things and they, it just didn't happen. Like, we don't mm-hmm. know what his vitals were other than he had a heart rate, a palpable heart rate of 120. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's a fair response, by the way. I, yeah, that's yeah. like, yeah, no, exactly. Like, I don't know. Um, anyway, so code yeah. and all the members of the engine come together and they fluidly move the patient off the bed and onto the floor to start pit crew style CPR. Michael Bolton initially jumps right into the role of doing CPR and, you know, after some quick coaching by the team, falls into an appropriate CPR rhythm. Atlas <laughs> takes Atlas takes charge of the scene. Michael Bolton and Bob are compressors. Bob 2, a.k.a. John C. McKinley, is on airway. Atlas will get the patient on the pads and everything will be awesome. So here's what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really quick. Pit crew style CPR, for those that don't know, not all municipalities do this, is essentially a style of doing CPR where you have uh, several compressors that are essentially waiting in line. And it is a method of doing CPR where you are able to rapidly change out compressors with minimal interruptions to keep high quality CPR going. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, exactly. Think of a pit crew at NASCAR. You don't want one guy doing all the wheels. Everyone jumps in and does their roles appropriately. Yeah. So here's what happens. CPR is being done perfectly. Good compressions, great rate, good communication. Bob 2, a.k.a. John C. McKinley, places an eye gel in the patient's mouth to deliver high-flow O2 via the BVM. Uh, they get an entitled CO2 reading, which is about 28. Okay. Up, on, uh, up at the patient's chest, CPR is being done, as I said, but Atlas is encountering a significant struggle. The patient is so wet and hairy that the defib pads won't even stick. Oh, my God. Atlas is beside himself trying to get them to work. He's trying to towel off the patient's chest again. But alas, or Atlas, to no no avail. (laughs) 
<laughs> the thing is, I actually really, these things make me laugh. I just know they're grody, but I'm just such a dad that these little puns <laughs> I can't help but crack up at. Yeah. No, I'm, sure. I'm sorry, yep. audience, but yes, I encourage him. It's funny to me. It's our show. <laughs> <laughs> The first two-minute rhythm check slash pulse check arrives, but there is no rhythm because the patient isn't on a monitor. And mm -hmm. also, there is no pulse. So, Bob now takes over compressions, and Michael Bolton is freed up and is assigned by Atlas, like, hey, help me get these goddamn pads on this wet, hairy patient. Yeah. <laughs> At That's... least that would be what I said. I don't know what they exactly said. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> Atlas thinks to grab benzoin wipes. I hope I'm saying that right. And with the combination of wipes and towels, is able to get the first set of pads to stick on the hairy chest. Hmm, that's a little foreshadowing there. The first set. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, a wild ambulance crew arrives into the room. <laughs> As they're immediately tackled by the crocodile hunter. Yeah, get into the Pokeball. The <laughs> and <laughs> Can you um, imagine walking in? Someone's like, I choose you. And you're like, what? <laughs> which pokemon by the way I, I don't know a whole lot about it and i'm sorry for these huge pokemon fans it's messed up you go around and you capture like you capture creatures and make them fight like how is this any different than like underground dog fighting how why do we encourage this this is why underground dog, underground the dog fighting rings that are going on those are actually just pokemon clubs that have turned sour They've like, you know what? I want to do this in real life. They go about, they steal puppies and they make them fight. It's the same <laughs> thing. Prove me wrong. Someone's back there. Some dog gets bit in the neck. They're like, that was very effective. And it's just like, oh, Jesus fuck. Christ. <laughs> it's, I, yeah. anyway. <laughs> um, Ambo Driver 1 and paramedic Bill Lumberg are here to assist. Atlas, without missing a beat, assigns Bill Lumberg to obtain vascular access and give epi. Bill Lumberg uh, drills a tibula IO, uh, sets it to a pressured liter bag of normal saline, and then pushes one milligram epi one to 10,000. Meanwhile, Atlas solves the hair problem by just ripping those hair pads, and of course the patient's chest hair, off, and yes. then opens another set of adult pads and places them. While they're placing those pads, the next two-minute cycle is up, and it's time for a pulse check. Atlas finally gets to look at the monitor and sees that the patient's in a wide and fast rhythm at a rate of about 150 beats per minute. Presumed VTAC. The monitor is charged. We have a pulse! All right. The patient remains unconscious with poor color. Entitled CO2, by the way, is now 39. Atlas hits the sync button. Clear. Paramedic Bill Lumberg, from basically in between the patient's legs, says, Yeah. Let's just <laughs> hold off on shocking the patient. We just got Rosk. <laughs> okay, so for the record, that's probably not exactly how they said it, but uh, they did throw the brakes on the cardio version. Okay. It, that's an interesting decision, but well, it's yeah. gone. So... Atlas does not shrug in this instance, but asks, why would we want to hold off on shocking unstable ventricular tachycardia? Bill Lumberg slowly says, I don't know, Atlas. Let's just wait. And Atlas, and 
by the way, this might shock you, uh, isn't compelled by that particular <laughs> argument. <laughs> yeah. And, and they clear the patient, gently moving Bill Lumbert away from the patient's leg so they don't risk also getting shocked. And bam. Kick it up a notch. <laughs> the patient is synchronized, cardioverted into a sinus rhythm at a rate of about 100 or 110 nice. or something like that. Um, did you get my Emerald reference back there, by I, the way? I did. I did. Yeah. We, dude, we have so many references. We've got Office Space, Star Wars, yeah. Emerald. <laughs> we're, we're really covering a lot of categories. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ayn Rand. Or Ayn Rand. Yeah, or right. Ayn Rand. Jesus. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rand. <laughs> All right. So Atlas tells ambulance driver one to grab out the amiodarone so he can start an amiodarone drip at 150 milligrams over 100 milliliters over 10 minutes via the IO as an antidysrhythmic for the ventricular rhythm. While this is happening, he works on obtaining a post ROSC 12 lead, which they find has ST elevation in two, three and AVF as well yeah. as V5 and V6. Uh, they don't recall any other findings on the 12 lead. And by the way, this 12 lead was taken right at about four minutes post cardioversion. Mm -hmm. But what they found seems to confirm the MI that they suspected the patient was having. I will touch on this piece later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now that this task is complete, Atlas tries to get the scene to move forward. Atlas tells Bill Lumberg that they need to get more epi drawn up and ready to go and maybe prep a levofed drip. Uh, well, he and his crew work on getting the patient out. However, Bill Lumberg is not responding to these requests. They are actually ordering the crew to obtain a CPG on a patient who is still unconscious and unresponsive. Atlas is trying to get the crew members to get, bring the stretcher into the room, but Bill is also arguing about that and wants the patient to be carried out. Atlas reports feeling extremely frustrated with all of this, but it gets worse. The patient's level of consciousness has increased and they are starting to move and gag on the eye gel. And real quick, I'm going to give you vitals because they also have vitals now. Heart rate's 121, sinus rhythm with occasional ventricular ectopy. Blood pressure's 106 over 79. Respirations, the patient is now breathing spontaneous. It's unknown rate. It's being supported with that BVM eye gel. SpO2 is 91% with the okay. high flow O2. And end tidal CO2 is in the 30s. Okay. Uh, level of consciousness, GCS is 1, 2, and 4. So no eye opening, moans, incomprehensible moaning to pain, and uh, withdrawing from pain. The, again, the patient is starting to become more and more agitated as time moves on. So okay. they're starting to gag on that eye gel. Chris? What would you want to do here? Uh, I would say the patient. I think at this point, um, you know, we've got an eye gel. I'm really happy to see that we got both saturations uh, and solid entitled reading. So, yeah, I would I would move forward with uh, sedation. Yeah, I I feel the same way. We're going to talk about this again at the end of the episode as well, because okay. here's what happens. Atlas orders the eye gel to be gently removed by one of the crew members. What they do is they then place an NPA in the patient's nose. Uh, they replace the uh, nasal cannulas. And they put a non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute uh, on top of the patient's face. So they still have the entitled cannula. They have an, now have a non-rebreather uh, mask and an NPA. Okay. So. Uh, mm. I, all right, go on. <laughs> <Sorry>. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Atlas also finally settles the conflict about the logistical issue with essentially the following strong verbiage or instructions. Get a mega mover. We'll logro the patient and fine. We'll carry them out. I asked Atlas about this. Atlas didn't feel that there was any reason that the stretcher couldn't be brought in closer to the scene. But And this just seems like such an awkward hill for Bill Lumberg to want to die on. And, mm-hmm. you know, granted, I wasn't there. I didn't get to hear Bill Lumberg's side of on, you know, why they couldn't just bring the stretcher in. But I seemed like I agree with Atlas's mentality of like, I don't want to waste mental ener- energy arguing over bullshit. So, yeah. The problem I have with uh, things like mega movers. Uh, especially in patients where we want to make sure their airway is good. It, it, you have a tendency to start doing like chin to chest kind of stuff. And especially mm-hmm. on, on, on an obese patient. Uh, I mean, let's think about the call we did with Mandy Krikora, where we talked about a bariatric airway. Yeah. And one of the things she pointed out right away was that, Hey, like airway positioning, especially in bariatric uh, patients is really important. Um, my concern with a mega mover uh, with the floppiness of them is that you can really easily chin to chest somebody if you're not paying attention. And there's very, okay little you can do without having someone let go and you don't want to do that (laughs) so yeah absolutely i think that's fair so they then tell ambulance driver one to go open the back of the ambulance and get the stretcher set up with the auto loader they then to their crew say we're going to four point lift this patient out to the stretcher unfortunately this patient is becoming more and more uh, movie They are moaning, they're not following commands, and they're moving well on the sheet. So Atlas tells Bill Lumberg, hey, we're going to need to sedate this patient. And I want to bring up a few options available to the medics at this moment, as this is a bit of a crossroads. There are a couple options of sedation in this setting. There is the, so there was the like, oh my God, this patient is about to get up and kill me option. So I'm going to give them uh, like up to five milligrams per kilogram. I am ketamine. So, you know, that (laughs) obviously doesn't apply here. No, there's the two to five milligram for said IV option, which Atlas was concerned about because they had learned that it can significantly and negatively impact the patient's blood pressure, especially in the elderly and This is a patient that they were concerned could be negatively impacted by this route. There was also some more procedural sedation options, which allowed for like smaller dosed IV ketamine or some IV atomidate with 100 micrograms of fentanyl mixed in. This call did occur in the early days, in the early EMS days of like ketamine is the greatest drug ever. We should use it for everything. Like, can we put it like, can can the mechanics use it to make our ambulances run better? Like, Like, can like, is there some, yeah, like we're just trying to find everything and anything that it could go into. Um, the idea that we have this medication that supports respirations, blood pressure, and is potentially like neuroprotective really did seem like the best choice to Atlas at the time. So the protocol for this uh, service is, by the way, to just slowly and specifically over two minutes give up to a max of 200 milligrams ketamine IV for sedation. But, and this is the big but, you shouldn't actually get to 200 milligrams. In this service, you are supposed to stop pushing this medication as slow as you're pushing it when you have achieved desired effect. So desired effect being the patient stops kind of moving. Okay. That's it. That's where you stop. Yeah. So as this patient is placed on the stretcher and continues to fail, Bill Lumberg pushes all 200 milligrams ketamine IV into the patient at the standard EMS fast fashion 
uh, that we all kind of are used to as they're being loaded into the ambulance. Why did this happen? Well, as it turns out, Bill was apparently not familiar with this protocol, possibly, or just didn't understand what they were being asked to do by Atlas. Atlas says they did not really specify the administration when they asked Bill to administer this medication. Moments later, the patient was noted in, again, they're in the ambulance. The patient's noted to be agonal and pulseless in a slow PEA on the monitor. Atlas is dismayed. Mm-hmm. They feel responsible. Like the weight of this outcome rests entirely on their shoulders. CPR was restarted. An OPA was placed into the patient's mouth and fairly routine ACLS was performed while the patient was transported code three to the hospital. The patient went from a slow PEA to a systole and was not brought back. At the hospital, the patient was pronounced dead. So, Oof. let's dive into the call. All right. So, to summarize, Atlas, Alice, who's a medic on an overtime shift, uh, gets dispatched to a 58-year-old male patient who is reported to be uh, unconscious. Uh, they're working with the Bobs and Michael Bolton. So, uh, I love your names, by the way. Thank you. Uh, they get there. They got a male who's learn oriented when they get there, but just looks like shit has the has the I'm having an MI skin uh, bad news bears. So uh, they're reported to being woken up uh, with shortness of breath and weakness, which they then reported to their spouse. And then they had a syncopal episode. Spouse then called 911. Uh, looks like our crew gets there and the patient is uh, awake but with chest pain. So, um, so there are complications getting the monitor on, which is oh so human and oh so real, by the way. And those complications continue as the patient then goes into cardiac arrest. Uh, Lumberg arrives and tries to stop the cardioversion, uh, which I would not do, but I don't want to say that Lumberg is completely without merit for... Well- yeah, we'll talk well, about yeah, that. We'll, we'll, dig, we'll dig into that. But, you know, Lumberg decides yeah. that they just want to stop the cardio version. Um, and I think they're wrong. A power struggle ensues in the post kind of ROSC management window between uh, Lumberg and Atlas. A superglottic airway is removed due to the patient waking up. A medication ordered to sedate the patient is given, but is followed very, very poorly. Or maybe you could say almost overzealously. Give this ketamine. I got yeah. it. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and then after that ketamine administration, the patient rearrests shortly after, and Atlas feels like th- this rearrest is all their fault. Yeah, yeah. That no, I think that sums it up really nicely. Um, mm-hmm. So, oh, and hey, earlier uh, you said something about how we'll see why they uh, didn't get a med list yeah. on this guy. Is that is that just because the guy coded and uh, <laughs> too much shit going on? Yeah, that's why we don't have the medications. Um, everyone stopped what they were doing and just sort of prioritized the code. Now, and granted, that part could have gotten picked up again, but I think the circumstances of the code and then the post-ROSC chaos with the patient and, well, then providers uh, just probably prevented that bit from happening. Um, but, you know, to, it, it's a small miss in my mind, but, you know, there it is. All right, gotcha. Why don't we start here? What did you like about this call? Like, what things stood out to you as, like, really good moves before we get into kind of the, the learning points that I've sort of uh, sectioned off? Uh, so the things that, that I like is that um, I feel like Atlas did a pretty good job of 
of being PIC and setting themselves up to be the best PIC that they could be. Um, it sucked that they had to manage what seemed like a rebellious uh, member of the crew. Um, I would even say maybe like a butthurt member that just wanted to be right in something. Um, so that kind of sucks. Um, but I do. I, but I feel like Atlas did a great job of not dunking themselves underwater. And we talk about that a lot. Sometimes you can get wrapped up in individual interventions and you can lose that overall picture. And I think Atlas did a really great job of putting himself in a position to maintain the overall picture. That's what I liked about it. Yeah. I did like that uh, when Lundberg came in and would say, hey, give us your access and you're on drugs. Lundberg hop right to it and, and and sunk an io didn't fuck around you've got a you know you've got a bariatric patient everyone's working on and they sunk an io uh in a tibia which i'm not a fan of the tibial site but i will say this when cpr is going on the humeral site is really hard and it's even harder to keep accessing when you have a bunch of cpr going on it, yeah it kind of depends on like where everyone's positioned i mean ideally you know, like our ground protocols say like, hey, you really want like waist up, you know, like you want yeah. humeral sites or you want, you know, ACs for IV access. You really don't. I guess there's potentially some information coming out that, you know, tibial IO sites are just not as good as closer sites. But, yeah. you know, I, I get it if everyone's crowded around an area, people kind of make that decision there. And, you mm -hmm. know, that information wasn't present at the time to my knowledge. So, yeah. yeah. And for all I know, their protocol doesn't allow um, other sites. We've run into that in a few calls here yeah. where we still have some ancient protocols out there that say tibia only. Yeah, so, for sure. Um, yeah. I agree with your point. Like, I think he managed this well. He didn't get underwater. Yes, he was focused on a task of getting the pads on the patient. And, but I think this is where, like, he, that was what needed to happen. That was a step that absolutely needed to happen. And he's, you know, like, it's like someone might argue, like, well, what about access? What about these other things? It's like, I, I prioritize getting the pads on the patient. The yeah. access piece can wait until that task is done. And I mm -hmm. know that that, you know, like maybe he could have assigned somebody else to do that, but it, it sounded like that was a, an involved task that mm -hmm. the, maybe the other people might not have been able to do as well. Or, yeah, I don't know. It was he, also a barricade hindering further assessment and, and hindering his ability to be a, to be a PIC. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I, I do think delegation of such things, but I mean, a, a code needs to be run based on what rhythm you're in. And if you can't get what rhythm you're in, you could really miss something that's potentially crucial. And so I can understand wanting to focus on that um, yeah. because it can be a block where you really can't keep running the code until you get it. Yeah. Um, or at least you can't run it the way. Yeah. So I, yeah. I kind of understand that. Yeah. You know, as I think about it, like delegation actually probably could have happened, you know, and, and maybe it could have, maybe it couldn't have. I think that would be the one, like one small piece that I would improve. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't blame them because I, that's also something that I would want to prioritize. And I can see myself going like, this won't take long. And then, you know, just being like in that moment. So let's, let's go into this call a little more into some of the more deeper issues because there are some inherent questions that kind of come with this call. You know, one, what, like what was going on with the patient? Was this an MI? Was this something else that they could have missed? Why did Lumberg need the TPS report? Did Atlas get the memo? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and more, more realistically, yeah. like why not cardiovert the patient? Was that a fair stop? Right. Why take out the airway? And the real sexy question is like, was it ketamine that killed this patient? Was this a, you know, was this yeah. a killed by a paramedics patient? And were there better, were the other options better? So 
Let's start with what do we think was going on with this patient? MI to me seems to be kind of the most logical answer, especially once we kind of get those 12 lead findings that they have. I mean, you and I, we don't have the 12 lead uh, in front of us, but you have that elevation, that 2-3 uh, AVF elevation, which is indicative uh, of an inferior. Um, PE is totally possible, um, I suppose. You know, we've talked about how 12 leads are really just varying degrees of possibilities. Yeah. Um, you know, a P is totally possible, but, you know, in this case, you know, and, and when you're working this call for all practical reasons, I would focus my post ROSC treatment around this being an MI patient. And that would include activating a cath lab uh, on the way in. So I, yeah. I would say MI is the winner, winner, chicken dinner. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of oscillate between uh, MI and PE. Um, mm-hmm. But what I can say is I don't think it's hypoglycemia. when i when i would not have checked a blood sugar on this patient either um so there is that (laughs) yeah i I don't Um, i I don't think uh i don't think no i think given you know like i i'm usually one to say like hey let's you know like let's keep looking for alternative things and make sure we're not missing anything but really nothing else fits these profiles except for you know those conditions yeah Um, m-i-m-p-e and i think we also got to boil it down to this answer is so there's what you think it is. What are you going to do about it? And I think the the reason I, I say focus on MI is I can't think of it. Correct me. Maybe it could, I could be wrong. I can't think of anything I would change about the call or anything I would do to specifically impact a patient who is having a PE or specifically impact that disease process versus with an MI. The reason I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to go down the MI route is because it could be a PE. But if it's an MI, we need a cath lab ready to go. And I have enough findings to confidently activate that cath lab. So to me, whether or not it's a PE is almost like, I don't want to say I don't care because I do. It's important to, to know yeah. what happens to patients. But in terms of the practical, what's going to change, like, like what am I going to do for this patient? PE to me doesn't play a role versus MI does. And so yeah. that's why I would say to me, I, I'm going to pretend it's an MI until yeah. I'm at the hospital. Um. Yeah, well, let's go real quick into the, the 12 lead timing after Ross. Cause you know, like I mm-hmm. remember a time when, you know, like one, we didn't get 12 leads on Ross patients. You were kind of the weird guy if you asked. Yeah. Uh, and then there was that big push, like every, every Ross patient should get a 12 lead, like ASAP. Um, yeah. you know, and that became sort of the standard practice. And it turns out, um, it's not the best practice to get a, 12 lead right after cardiac arrest. Um, oh, wow. what, what they found, and this is a recent study that came out, uh, it's called the Peace Study, and it's published in the European Heart Journal. I think it came out like November of 2020. So that's hmm. how recent it is. What they found out is that if you wait about eight minutes after the patient retur- you know, gets their pulses back, there's a 60% reduction in false positives. And this oh. really, to me, this makes sense because like, dude, your heart just went through some serious shit. <laughs> That's At, like, true. It needs time to process and like, think about how it feels about the trauma that it just incurred. Huh. You know, it like, it's got to call up friends and just kind of like, it's really got to think about what's yeah. going on. And what did I do last night, guys? Does anybody remember what I did? Where's my <laughs> exactly, car? Yeah. Like, dude, dude where's my car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the references it, continue. Jesus. Um, yeah, so what the, that's what they found is that the longer you waited, 
the less instance of uh, the more accurate the 12 leads were because you've given your time, you've given your heart time to kind of recover from that injury and to, you know, sort of establish a normalcy again. So uh, that is the ideal time. That being said, like, I, I don't know, two, three in AVF and, you know, V5 and V6 or, or whatever it was where that to me sort of says like, yeah, it's probably a STEMI, but um, you know, and either way, it's sort of inconsequential. I think that's an appropriate thing to activate the cath lab, but no, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about that cardio version. Uh, so Chris, you, you also, you also are kind of like, I don't know why, but maybe like, what are your thoughts on this cardio version thing? Where, uh, so where do you I, say I, he should have been cardioverted and, and he was, and that's great. Um, that that's what needed to happen, but I don't want to completely, you know, let, like tear down Bob. So what? Not Bob, I, I guess, Bill. Yeah, but Bill, sorry. But yeah, the Bobs are fine. Um, yeah, but I don't, I really don't want to like have to like tear down, tear down Bill uh, on this because there is, uh, there is some reasoning to be considered here. I just think it, it's incorrect. I think the best way for me to kind of like make my point or trying to get what I'm saying is to just, I got to talk a little bit about why VTAC can occur and what are the things like, like we're going to see it. So basically at its heart, what VTAC is, is you have the pacemaker of the heart is not uh, above the AV node. It's below in the ventricles somewhere. And there are so many different reasons uh, and things that can increase the automaticity of cardiac cells uh, in the ventricles to the point that this happens. It can be electrolyte imbalances. You can have previous MIs that have caused scar tissue and these create pathways and loops where you can get these ventricular the stimulus that essentially cause contraction and then stimulate themselves again and then cause another contraction and stimulate themselves again where they get into these rapid loops and there's a lot of things that can go on that can cause ventricular tachycardia uh one of the things that if i was walking into this into this call and this is something that maybe i don't know exactly one of the things that can happen when it comes to ventricular based rhythms is sometimes the ventricles will take over because other pacemakers have failed like the s node, for example. And normally what that results in is what we'd call an idioventricular, which is usually a slow wide complex uh, on a monitor. Um, I don't know. I'll openly admit, I don't know if ventricular tachycardia could result for the same reasons. But I think what the thought here is, is what Mr. Lumberg is looking at is they're saying like, hey, we went from potentially no rhythm to and actually we don't know if we had no rhythm before or not for all i know he's been in vtac the entire time but um we went from potentially nothing and now we have a perfusing rhythm let's not get rid of it because that could be the only rhythm his heart can make because the rest of the heart has failed there is no working sa node to actually generate a rhythm in this guy so if we take away the one rhythm he has then maybe he'll get nothing in return i can see that thought process here is why I would not go down that route. One, I personally don't know if that's actually accurate. I, I've, I've seen the thought process before. I don't know if there's any studies to really support that. But what I do know is that a lot of our treatment of wide complex tachycardias or ventricular tachycardia comes from the American Heart Association. And what the American Heart Association ha does, this is kind of their iterative process, is they put out a protocol or a guideline or an algorithm. And then they just sit there and look at studies. 
And I'm like, okay, now we're going to adjust the algorithm based on these studies. And now we're going to monitor that and see what happens. And so generally speaking, when they put an algorithm and they say, hey, when you see this, do this, they're putting it out because that is what works for the majority of people in this situation, if you have an unstable, which this is definitely unstable, wide complex tachycardia, you should cardiovert because the majority of the time that has a better end result than other treatment modalities. So if you're going to walk in and you're going to vary from that recommendation, which is what Mr. Bill wants to do, if you're going to vary from that, you need to have a really good reason. You need to have a clinical reason other than, I don't know, let's just wait. That's not a compelling argument. And so if you don't have a clinical reason to vary from what the American Heart Association has put out there, then you're really taking a gamble and you're betting against the odds. Don't bet against the odds unless you have a reason. One piece of information that I think would be curious to know, and we don't get to know this, is what what rhythm was he in before he coded? Sure. I would love I would love to know that. That would that that may kind of weigh in on this. Like, were they in VTAC because they coded, or did they have a different rhythm and then coded, and now they've come back into VTAC? Like, who knows? Yeah. So that'd be interesting to know, but we don't get to know that. Yeah. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree with with basically everything you said. You know, like my my impulse is to basically just follow the lines of AHA. Uh, yeah. I was curious about this because it's not the first time that I've heard that. Um, but I really found nothing in my intense Googling session that really supports this move on paper. Um, yeah. So I actually I. In fact, I and just turned, to clarify, when you say this move, you mean not cardioverting, not cardioverting. Gotcha. Exactly. So I, I did bring up I, I did actually talk to a friend of mine uh, and friend of the show uh, who's a longtime paramedic and an expert uh, who I'm codenaming Z to ask okay. what their opinion was on this move. And sort of here's what they offered. They, they said they could be compelled to wait on cardioverting, but it's sort of circumstance dependent. Like, so if this was their scene and they were PIC, they said, you know, without knowing too much that there, there's a, with a rate of 150, there's a possibility that in the single lead in which we're looking at, you know, at the rhythm, uh, what appears to be a wide complex tachycardia could actually just be like an SVT with a barency. Mm-hmm. We don't know because we didn't, we're not able to see the rhythm beforehand. Um, it's also possible that it could be like a two to one, a flutter. I don't think that's the case here, but again, he's, you know, considering options. Um, so, and, and that also, by the way, is potentially true. So what they said is they would like, you know, they retain the option of cardioverting, but they'd probably focus on getting like blood pressure vitals and stuff. Um, and they also pointed out that, after ROSC, there are spontaneous but like self-resolving arrhythmias that could occur, often called reperfusion rhythms. Mm-hmm. So I asked, like, so if you walked in and this was a scene and I described the scene to them, like, you would stop this? And he went, no, I, in fact, I wouldn't even blink if they did it. I would like nothing. None of this would spur me into going like, stop. I'd go, OK, that person is managing this cardiac arrest, you know, post cardiac arrest patient. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start thinking forward about the, you know, transport of this patient, presuming yeah. that they get out of this arrhythmia. And again, I, I think those are the, that's the best thing to do is to, is to treat this as an AHA algorithm 
and the patient is unconscious. They just died. They're inherently unstable. I would mm-hmm. presume rather than go like mm, it might be this other rhythm, like the fact that the patient had chest pain, shortness of breath looked like shit, probably yeah. uh, like we have to presume this is a ventricular tachycardia because the, that is the most dangerous thing here. There isn't there isn't any reason to kind of look for zebras when it's right. clearly a horse that's kicking you in the fucking cut. You know, like I, right. that's, that's my opinion on it. And I would want to cardiovert that because my worry is that it's inherently unstable and they, you know, but again, th- there isn't any real specific literature that I could find that addresses this. So I just sort of result, to, I, I defer to the standard practice. Yeah. And the main, and again, like you got to remember like the people who are putting out the standard practice, it behooves them to make sure that they're putting out a practice that helps the majority of patients. And so in all likelihood that that's the thing you're going to do. The other thing that, that I would kind of chime in really quick is I, whenever I see a wide, here's another thing. Whenever you see a wide complex like that, and it could be, you know, like AFib with aberrancy or, you know, the, the two to one, uh, a flutter, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and, and here's, here's kind of why I say that is it doesn't matter because the, the treatment for any of those three rhythms, whether it's VTAC, uh, AFib with RVR with an aberrancy to make it look wide or a flutter that's just going too fast. The treatment is the same. And that's synchronized cardio version mm, mm-hmm. for all yeah. of the unstable tachycardias. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a narrow complex or if it's a fib or a flutter, you kind of have this one thing that you're going to do on, on, on this patient or you should because they are unstable. And whether it's unstable, narrow complex or unstable, wide complex, most algorithms, while well, the HA algorithm points to synchronized cardio version. So that's your answer. So basically what you're doing is you're playing a waiting game to see if they either resolve or code. Well, I guess there's three things. Either it's not going to change and you're just going to ride in the whole hospital with them doing that. It's going to resolve on its own or they're going to code. My problem is, is like, I, I don't, I don't think you have a good defense if you wait on that. Because if you had an opportunity to convert them out of a lethal rhythm and you're hunting down this zebra and then it turns out it's not a zebra, you're left defending with your only explanation being like, well, I thought it was a zebra and I thought it would go away. That's not a great defense. Yeah, I, I, you know, like one of the arguments they made and there's a paper, there's a case review that sort of cites this where somebody was converted out of a and it was a two to one uh, a flutter at a rate yeah. of 150. They were converted out and then their blood pressure and everything dropped because they corrected the rate and part of cardiac output rate is a strong part of cardiac output. Very true. But, it's, you know, it, so there is an argument that there could be unwanted effects from cardioverting, but like, I don't know. The same is true in all options. So I would just right. go with the one where you have again, a defense. A case on one patient is uncompelling to me. Because yeah. Yeah. that explanation that, that you just said is basically a zebra. I yeah. mean, it's exactly what we're talking about. And, and so that that justification is basically saying, but I did see a zebra this one time. Yeah. Okay. Don't, uh, unless you, yeah. uh, unless you see the zebra, don't assume it, it's, it, it's a zebra because again, your defense is going to suck. Like, yeah. like you can't, you cannot bring your defense of being like, I varied from the standard of care that is researched by a large consortium of physicians 
I varied from it because I read a study that had this one example where this could happen. And that could be the case. And here's one of the things you have to get comfortable with in EMS. Sometimes you're going to give the horse treatment and it is a fucking zebra. And you know what? They're going to be worse off from it. You got to be okay with that. What you have to do is you have to know that you made the best decision with the information you had. And the information we have is that we should cardio over it. That's my opinion. Yeah. And you know, sometimes the horse treatment for the horse also has bad effects and that's also true so right yeah yeah and by the way a little more in depth the there was an after action report on this call uh Mm. and uh for reasons and (laughs) the medical director reviewed this and their comment was and i quote i would have fucking shocked him too so (laughs) there's that um should have so let's yeah. go on to the next topic of the decision to pull the airway versus keep it in. And okay. I, you and I both sort of voiced our opinion on keeping the airway. Um, mm. Let's revisit the decision to pull the airway. Mm. This medic said like, hey, we don't have an RSI protocol. The patient is gagging. My the the RSI drugs are actually only in the ambulance and they're in a box and the paralytics are in the ambulance. And mm-hmm. so rather than like we have a patient who's gagging now, rather than send somebody out to try and go get paralytics and it's this might not be a clear indication for them to use that, they ultimately decided like, let's just pull it and provide you know uh, breathing support or like oxygen support essentially. Okay. Um, I, I've encountered this this sort of mentality several times uh, in with local EMS providers in like on scene calls that we respond to um, where they have a patient who's stirring. There's an advanced airway in place and they're going like, Hey, we need to re-paralyze and you know, this patient so that we can keep the airway. Um, my preference would be like you said, Hey, let's give some sedation. What are right. your thoughts? Do you keep the airway? I mean, and this is sort of where I'm at, but yeah, you know, like, is there an argument to be made? Like, hey, let's pull this thing. So, so really quick, can I just clarify something on the on their RSI protocol or their yeah. lack of? I I, I just want to sure this right. They don't have an RSI protocol, but they carry the drugs. So they have an RSI protocol. It, it sounds like I don't know where it is in the in this system where it was in the implementation process, but it's. The, okay. Essentially, the drugs are in an ambulance, Bill Lumberg's ambulance, mind gotcha. you, and that is where they're kept. They're not in the kits, so they're not available on the scene. Okay. So, okay. So there is a protocol to RSI, but we're just, we don't seem like we're really integrating it well at this point, but in terms of like the, the practical steps to make sure it's something we can do just aren't there. Yeah. Um, Okay. But my thoughts on, on, on pulling the airway, I, you know, I, I really wouldn't, I, I would have definitely gone the sedation route, but I, I'm not there. And so like, I guess like, I really want to know more of like, all right, so what, what were some of the reasons that you wanted to pull the airway? I think probably what I would say is some of the initial thought patterns that were going on was probably like, okay, like he seems to be setting all right. Uh, his end title numbers are good. You know, they can probably maintain their own airway, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, he's, he's breathing through that. He's breathing around the BVM. Like they're supporting him with the BVM breaths. Yeah. So. And I can kind of start to see too, like, cause immediately you start thinking of, I mean, to me and, and what, what I would imagine, and I'm definitely trying to put thoughts in someone else's head here. So I don't know if this is what Atlas thought, but this is what I think of. Whenever you see someone start to bu- start a bucket tube, immediately what starts going through my mind is like, what are my sedation? 
sedation options. And and I start kind of weighing the pros and cons of sedation, which I absolutely imagine we're going to get into it here in a little bit. But oh, yes. What it very well could have been, and I can definitely see this being the case, is they look at that airway and they're like, gosh, you know, like I just got a Ross patient back. I'm really worried about dumping blood pressure. There's a lot of concerns, whether real or perceived, about a lot of the different sedation medications that we can give that may not be blood pressure supportive to this patient. Um, and there's controversy around that. Gosh, which one do I choose? Wait, I got a better idea. I'm just going to remove the thing that's irritating him. And mm. so mm-hmm. I can see that logic path going down. But I, I would say what would be the long run better for this patient, and I would say the safer route, is to make sure you still have that airway and really start analyzing your sedation routes um, to to keep that yeah. airway in. Because uh, one thing, see, here's the thing you have to keep in mind. Uh, patients, especially this patient, th- think of like an ICU patient, for example. An ICU patient, uh, they're super sick. Their pressures are going to be all over the place. And this is one of the things that you don't see in pre-hospital uh, care is patients, uh, like super sick patients where they are hemodynamically unstable, they're still receiving sedation all the time. Yeah. They're still getting fentanyl on a drip, like constantly. Like, you know, they're still getting all these things. So I know in EMS, we seem to be a little more apprehensive because sedating hemodynamically unstable patients isn't something we do a whole lot. But now that I have a job where I do a lot more critical care and, and, and you do as well, Spence, we tend to see sedation in hemodynamically unstable patients almost every day. And so we're a little bit more comfortable with it. And so I can definitely kind of see the pre-hospital, some pre-hospital in the pre-hospital setting, getting yeah. some jitters about wanting to try this and, and sedate this patient. Yeah. I, I think one of the big things here that I want to divorce is the idea that you have to paralyze a patient or re-paralyze or paralyze a patient to keep an airway. Absolutely. Like if you have paralyzed a patient and they are starting to stir, they don't need more para- They don't need paralytics. You've, you've used the paralytics the appropriate time if you are assigning a patient to obtain the tube, once you have that tube, barring crazy circumstances, if the patient is starting to rouse and you're worried about losing the tube, sedation mm. is the answer. And Absolutely. the nice thing is, is the patient, this patient probably doesn't need a ton of it. And again, we'll talk about this soon, but I think this is where, and this is where, this is the decision I would make. I would give small doses of sedation fentanyl or Versed or something along those lines with yeah. their blood pressure of like 106 at the time that this was happening t- to keep that airway in because that's just one thing that I can main- maintain control of and make sure that that is still happening because here's the thing a patient who just arrested they're probably going to arrest again like th- there's a high probability that that could happen and then mm-hmm. you'll need to manage that airway again which you know to, again this happened again in this call yeah, so and, and that's what happened yeah yeah so that's my thought um and yeah yeah sweet all right so let's talk about the decision to use ketamine for sedation with this rosk patient with a possible mi um yeah <laughs> so uh, this is going to blow people's mind but <laughs> My like, I love ketamine. I, you know, I, I right. again, I'm the guy who's like, can we put this in the car? Is it a fuel additive? Right. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, he is Spencer actually cleans his countertops with ketamine. Yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> water, you spray, it actually works great. I want to be clear. Like, uh, not my job's ketamine. Uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, have you ever seen my big fat Greek wedding? Uh, 
long time ago. Yeah. All right. The dad in there thinks Windex cures everything, like including like warts. <laughs> and so he sprays it on like his warts and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's how <laughs> I feel ketamine is, except yeah. right in this case, I. I at my first line thought is not to use ketamine. And mm-hmm. this is really I was convinced by talking with like medical directors for our ground service and some of the some of the small tidbits that I've read, which essentially say like there just isn't any data to say that it's safe for patients with an MI. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it arguably could be a good choice, but in a normotensive patient, again, with the blood pressure of 106, I would prefer to stay on the trodden, like already trodden paths, the tried and true paths, especially for a patient, again, who isn't severely yeah. hypotensive, you know, because, you know, again, like I get it, coronary arteries need perfusion too. I, my preference would actually be to use fentanyl and Versed, like smaller doses of those drugs. I don't yeah. think this patient probably need, would need much, but those would be my things. Um, I, but here's the thing. I can't find any like really solid opinion on this it's it's this is just one of those things where it's unknown territory I, there might be an argument be, to be made about like a patient who is like less than a you know less than a 90 blood pressure where that yeah. might actually be a beneficial drug because again like you want to keep a blood pressure and i wouldn't want to give somebody who's like super or severely hypotensive fentanyl or versed necessarily um, mm. but that's my opinion. Chris, where do you stand? I, you know, I, I really agreed with ketamine just, just to be, you know, kind of, uh, upfront. Um, I do know that there is an absence of data for it to be necessarily safe for an MI, but are there concerns where it's bad for an MI? Here's my thought on why it might not be great for an MI. So we know yeah. that, you know, it's naturally, it's a negative inotrope. So it, you know, like that at its core, it decreases the workload of the heart. It slows the rate down, all of that stuff. But it does, uh, it, it works oppositely like the reason we use it is because we think it's going to be you know better for respirations it's going to increase cardiac output because it releases yeah. all those catecholamine stores and therefore increases cardiac output now that could be increasing the workload of the heart and which then further worsens the the mi that they're having again i think the risk would be minimal in a severely hypotensive yeah. patient and it's probably the better agent to use acknowledging that there's a lack of data to support it but at least i have a pretty compelling reason to use it yeah ketamine kind of solves its own problem because it causes a catecholamine release catecholamines being epi and norepi that essentially outweigh its negative inotrope properties yep. unless you have a patient in a catecholamine depleted state where there's no catecholamines to really release in which case yeah you can cause a problem but that a catecholamine depleted patient is like someone who's been septic for a bit yeah, um, I don't see any reason in this particular patient to believe that they would be catecholamine depleted. We even added catecholamines. We added epi, you know, yeah. so um, I, I don't think this patient hits the catecholamine depleted state. Um, his blood pressure. Yeah. 106. Um, yeah, that's not a that's not a bad blood pressure. My only concern about it. And, and th- this is this is not warranted. Or I guess here's the thing. This isn't my concern. And I will tell you this, you know, Spence, if you were PA seeing that call and I was there with you. 
which we haven't done that in a good long time. Um, we should. And you said, hey, Chris, let's do, uh, let's just do fentanyl and Versed. I'd be 100% on board. I would yeah. not balk at that. What's, I would not be like, hey, we should really try codamine. I'd be like, yeah, sounds good. Uh, I would have no problem with it. I can, I can definitely see, though, how a lot of people would look at this patient and be like, hey, yeah, they're 106. But that's just down the street from not good blood pressure. Like it's not it's not a bad blood pressure, but it's not 120. And so there's a lot of perceptions, um, which maybe I'll dovetail into this. Well, maybe not. But um, there's a lot of perceptions about fentanyl, for example, that that'll drop blood pressure. And so I can see people wanting to stay away from that. And considering his blood pressure was just zero, I think there's a tendency to want to run the other direction. So I can definitely see, uh, because I felt the same way, of wanting to give ketamine to Mm. stay as far away Mm -hmm. from zero as we can. Um, But like you said, you brought a really good point. Is that what we want to do for a sick heart? Yeah, and it's like, ah, yeah, because in trying to get away from zero, we may dump it right back into zero. And there are some protocols out there that do have ketamine contraindicated for ROSC patients. Uh, they either cite the, uh, they, they cite either the potential for the negative idotropic effect or the catecholamine release. So they're either worried about reducing cardiac output or increasing cardiac output. There's not a lot of consistency uh, that I've been able to find. Yeah, we, discussion. I mean, we could make the, we could worsen the injury if we increase their cardiac output yeah. too much. So that, mm-hmm. that would be my concern. Yeah. Like so, I think you've summarized it perfectly. Uh, so I, I will say this, I will, um, I'm going to learn from our discussion right here. And I will say that while I was 100% on board with Atlas, I mean, like, dude, do the ketamine. And I still don't think I would like dive on the patient and say not today. If someone wanted to push ketamine, <laughs> um, for sure. I, 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 not on my watch, rip my shirt off. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I would definitely, um, I, I think now I would probably say, yeah, you know, maybe the fentanyl versed route is kind of the way we go. This might be one of those things where you give a little bit of fentanyl and it does the trick precisely that this yeah. could be that situation where you don't, you, right. you just you give your fentanyl and you're like, Oh, all right. Solve the problem. Um, Oh, and some might be asking, well, what about Atomidate? Um, Cause that was also an option for this crew. And it seems like a reasonable choice. It has almost no impact on blood pressure. And this option also includes that fentanyl piece that I said I wanted. Um, mm. I don't really want Atomidate for this patient because nah. I want, ongoing sedation its effects last for about two minutes you know depending on what you read it's either described as short acting or ultra short acting (laughs) so well it's great for short procedures you know like cardioversion and and things of that nature it's not what i'd want for a patient to stop becoming combative right at least for any actual length of time chris you agree there yeah i do um same thoughts on automate kind of my i actually i would like to see automate kind of get phased out because it's ultra short acting it is a quicker onset but i feel like there are better drugs uh you know with the rare exception of like you said cardioversion which is a good example of when automate would be useful um but it isn't a lot of rsi pro, uh, protocols and I worry about short acting sedatives when we're paralyzing people, because oftentimes we have paralytics like, say, rocky rhodium, for example, that could last up to an hour, but a sedative that only lasts two to five minutes. Uh, and that can be pretty hellacious for a patient because you'd have no idea that the sedation wore off because they'd just be paralyzed witnessing and hearing everything uh, that they're doing. And that can be terrifying for them. So 100 uh, percent with you. Yeah. So. I said my preference would be that, you know, small doses of Versed and fentanyl. And 
and there is a fair like but again like sometimes the horse treatment also hurts the horse you know right. like there is that like it could be that their blood pressure drops given them you know a small dose of versed or fentanyl and like you said there there is con- there was there there has been concern that giving somebody fentanyl can drop their blood pressure um there's a prospective study which was published in 2011 and it was performed by an air ambulance service that, that granted used a small sample size of about uh, 1,055 patients, which looked at the amount of time somebody became hypotensive post administration of fentanyl. And I'll be honest, I was only able to look at the abstract because I am not a rich man. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there is a small sample size, but in the abstract, they did say like, hey, we took into account, you know, like the population considerations, including like the age, gender, medical history, diagnosis, as well as like we looked at doses and uh, all of that stuff. So here's what they found with their patients. Uh, again, 1,055 patients, they had hypotension post, which is, they defined hypotension as less than 90. Now, just to be uh, clear, systolic. this is 1,055 patients that all received fentanyl. That all received fentanyl. Okay. Um, 52 of those patients were hypotensive post-fentanyl administration. Okay. And by the way, 28 of those patients were hypotensive prior to the patient. <laughs> okay. so I, I, I don't know, like, did they stay hypotensive? Like, did, yeah. it's like weird. The fentanyl didn't fix it. Um, or did they get like more hypotensive? I don't know that information. So, yeah. I, but to me, what this says is like, Hey, in like, in smaller doses, probably isn't the same concern. Like we, we, gotcha. we're worried about like with morphine because morphine also had like a histamine release, which dr- right. tended to drop blood pressure. And with fentanyl, it's a synthetic opioid. So it, it doesn't have that same histamine release. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, fentanyl, yeah. And so fentanyl really doesn't impact. Yeah. It doesn't have the same vasodilative effects that like morphine, uh, and hydrocodone as well, or uh, hydromorphone, uh, as well have. So it's kind of one of those things where you look at it. And now given, I know there's going to be a lot of paramedics and nurses and everyone who listens to the show out there being like, yeah, but I've given fentanyl and I've seen the blood pressure drop. For sure. One of the things you have to, to understand is that there are so many things that impact blood pressure. And one of those things is when someone's in pain, heart rate gets driven up. I mean, basically when you're in pain, you get a sympathetic response to pain. Your body's geared to do that. Um, and so when you take the pain away, you reduce the sympathetic tone because you reduce pain. And so what you end up with is you end up with, um, you can end up with blood pressures and stuff dropping that way. So here's kind of my curveball question for you, Spencer. Oh, um, this, this, this. <laughs> nice. So here's my question to you. Potentially the mechanism for fentanyl when it does lower blood pressure is that it decreases the sympathetic response because the pain's gone mm-hmm. potentially. Does it matter? In other words, does it matter if blood pressure is being lowered because a sympathetic response is gone? Or does it matter if it's being lowered because there's a histamine response in the case of morphine? So I guess like my, my question would be is, is if we know it may lower the sympathetic response, is it still risky to give to someone with a borderline blood pressure? It's still lowering blood pressure, just mm-hmm. potentially by a different mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a fair question. I, our like our medical director reviewed a call where a patient was paced from you know like one very distant hospital to another and when they what they found was that 
this patient was paced, but there wasn't actually capture. And they figured this out because they were really like the crew spent the entire transport trying to troubleshoot this pacer because uh, mm-hmm. it needed to be. It wasn't an on demand. It had to be a just constant pacing to keep the patient awake. When they switched it to on demand, it would stop. And what uh, this you know cardiologist said was like, yeah, you they never got captured the whole time. The thing that was keeping the patient alive and why they would like lose pulses and the patient would you know crash every time they switched it is because the pain stopped. Mm. And so like, you know, the, the, this patient was just being paced and was hurt the entire time, <laughs> which <laughs> kept them alive. So, yeah, like there, there is a fair concern, like, hey, if we take away like too much sympathetic tone, like. Could he die? Yeah. Like I said, man, sometimes the horse treatment might hurt the horse. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but one driving point I, I I do want to make, even though we just had this, this little discussion because I thought it was a, a fun discussion. Yeah. Uh, studies do seem to support that fit, that the that fentanyl's um, impact on blood pressure is, is pretty minimal. It's pretty yeah. rare. So uh, yeah. and, and this is uh, and I hate to use and I've seen it, but I'm going to say, and I've seen it used on peri-arrest <laughs> patients and, you know, patients who are otherwise, you know, you know I would say, I want to maybe use the term hemodynamically unstable, but hemodynamically sure. untrustworthy. Um, so, <laughs> I'm watching you. Yeah, exa- exactly. Hands so, out I mean, your I'm, pockets. Yeah, exactly. But actually, yeah. So I mean, it's, yeah, I, I've yeah. done that. And uh, it's actually pretty common uh, that it's used. And here's the nice thing about fentanyl is it does have a shorter onset. Um, so, you know, it's not like, you know, more, both morphine and hydromorphone have longer, uh, have uh, longer, why can't Actions. I say the word? Actions. Longer. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah. They take longer to, 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 to make they go work away. longer. Yeah. Yeah. They work. There you go. This they work simple longer. English. They work longer uh, than than fentanyl does. So fentanyl is a, a fairly short acting. Uh, there, that's what I wanted: short acting versus long acting. Fentanyl is yeah. a fairly short acting uh, yeah. medication. So I'm more comfortable giving it to yeah. hypotensive patients. And, and let's quickly talk about midazolam. Basically, the best data I could find says that hypotension could be a concern, but this is a, usually a concern in sort of larger doses. You know, smaller doses don't seem to significantly alter a patient's hemodynamics. And so, like, in this instance, like, maybe two, like two, two milligrams is actually a pretty lower dose of this drug. Mm-hmm. So, I'd say, you know, uh, maybe two milligrams of midazolam, a smidge of fentanyl. And uh, bam, yeah, <laughs> you're good. <laughs> Kick it up. Um, but, you know, honestly, like every provider, we're all sort of limited by our protocols. This is, you know, like we're having this discussion, but like it's really your medical directors who sort of decide this. And you can branch out and contact online medical control and, you know, and say like, hey, I'd like to do this if you don't have a protocol for this situation. Yeah. But, you know, th- this also might be one where you could be proactive in your service if you don't have like, Hey, what if we get somebody back and they're combative with soft? What's your preference? And you know, your medical directors all will have opinions as it turns yeah. out because boy, they do. Yeah. Yeah. That or they're going to go Google it and come back and be like, so <laughs> <laughs> I put um, the options up on a dartboard and I threw uh, a needle at one, <laughs> but let's get to the kind of the final question here. Uh, the final question do did the ketamine kill the patient um it's possible i i don't 
I don't think so. Um, I, I, I will say this. Um, I, it is not good that two milligrams per kilogram was pushed immediately the, the way it was. I, I don't think that was helpful. Oh, the, yeah. The 200 milligrams, uh, yeah. kind of all at once. Yeah. That's probably yeah, not I, great. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that was helpful at all. Um, because all you're going to do is in the cases where ketamine could be a problem. Now, here's the other thing. It is potential that maybe this guy's been septic for days and now has another problem. It's totally possible that he's catecholamine depleted, I suppose. I mean, um, we, we did just give him epi, though, right? So, like, there's yeah, that. We he's added got a some... little bit of a catecholamine in there. But, you I, know, I, but I know it's got a short half. What, sorry, go yeah, on. But, but, but he, he, here's what I don't know is what I don't know is, is the milligram of epi that we give is that. It, does that match the catecholamine release of, of when ketamine is given? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea if, if, if that, ha- if there's any data, data on that. So um, yeah, I, I would say it, it's pretty unlikely that the ketamine is what killed the patient here. Here's one of the things to remember. This guy coded once before without anybody doing shit. Uh, <laughs> you, you brought him back. Um, he's probably having a massive MI. Here's the trick. I, I think he was bound to code again. And what I think happened is that you gave ketamine and then the code that was going to happen just happened. Yeah. That that's how I feel that this, this probably went. Um, but you know, it, it, I think here's what sucks. It's impossible to know. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely like the best summary of this, which is like, yeah. it's possible. We do know that sometimes for some patients, even without like a history of sepsis or whatever, like you, there can be transient hypotension with ketamine administration. You know, we, sure. we love ketamine because we're like, oh, it supports respiratory drive and, you know, like they keep breathing. But I have given patients ketamine and then they've stopped breathing for, right. you know, like there is that, there is a known like that's a known side effect or adverse effect where they like Mm -hmm. transiently just stop. So like, those are all things that could have potentially happened. Like maybe he did stop breathing and you know, whether it's an MI or PE, but like, you know, his body wanted every molecule of oxygen it could possibly have. And like his respiratory drive briefly stopped. And that like, that was all it took. But I, I think it's totally fair to go. Like he also, (laughs) He died without ketamine earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and like we didn't that wasn't an H or T that we could fix on scene. That yeah. needs that needs a hospital. And like so we didn't fix that condition. And, you know, it killed him before likely killed him again. So yeah. I, that's that's my opinion. I, I agree. It's a thing we don't get to know. It's possible, but it. Yeah, it's unlikely. It, it's unlikely. And actually, I guess there's one more question that needs to be resolved here. I, I think we answered the ketamine piece. Again, there's no proof that ketamine killed this patient Agreed. at all. But a mistake did happen on a scene involving ketamine, which could potentially have been a factor. Okay. Huge qualifiers there. Atlas felt like this mistake was their fault, and they've carried the weight of this on their shoulders, which, by the way, that's, that's really not uncommon. A lot of providers I know have expressed this belief to some extent when things go wrong. This, this is a very human trait. This is a human thing that, so, um, but let's see it from Atlas's point of view. In Atlas's mind, they were the PIC, they ordered the ketamine, and they didn't specify exactly what they meant, and a mistake happened. 
and the patient died. I, I, I understand what Alice is feeling. I'll be brief on this, as this is already a monster of an episode, but it's worth mentioning because I think it is an important issue to address. I think, no, this isn't their fault, and here's why. They have one IV push-dose ketamine protocol. Like, that's it. I, for, so, for sedation, they have the IM ketamine for provider safety, and again, that's the IM into the muscle for the guy who's about to kill you. Um, and then they have this sort of procedural sedation dose with the slow IV push over two minutes. So, asking another certified paramedic who is trained and cleared to work in their service area where this is a thing to push IV ketamine really only can mean the one option. So it's reasonable in my mind to expect that the other person would follow the their protocol. So I I do agree with you. I, I agree that uh, you need to be able to have a reasonable amount of trust uh, in the people you work with. But I do want to kind of bring up, uh, I kind of want to talk about like the Swiss cheese model, which I, I know we've heard about the Swiss cheese model. A lot of people in EMS have. Basically, what the Swiss cheese model is, is on one side of many layers of Swiss cheese, you have a bad outcome. Okay. And on the other side, you have you. All right. And the actions you perform. Well, the Swiss cheese, uh, if you have enough layers of Swiss cheese, there's no way to get through them, right? The holes won't line up if you have enough layers. But as you remove layers of Swiss cheese, you get more and more likely that some of the holes in the cheese will line up and allow that error to get to you. So one piece of advice I would have in this is that one layer of Swiss cheese is uh, that guy knowing his protocol. Okay. That's the first layer, but we can add another layer of Swiss cheese by really focusing on the big, loud, cheesy American Heart Association, uh, closed loop communication. And so instead of saying, Hey, push ketamine, it's, Hey, you know, push ketamine up to 200 milligrams, slow IV push. Uh, and then that can kind of clue in presuming the other person has studied the protocol to some extent that can kind of kick the brain and be like, Oh yeah, this is how I do this. So if you ever watch those American heart association videos, they're always like, Hey, you know, push one milligram of one to 10,000 epinephrine IV push that could have added another layer of Swiss cheese that maybe would have prevented the ketamine being administered in that fashion. Again, I doubt that it being administered in that fashion is what killed the patient, but to remove all doubt, avoid the error completely. And one way we can try and avoid the error is add another layer. And that's that's entirely fair. And that's a really, really good point to bring up. So, yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that piece. And then I think that works, man. Yeah. Uh, well, shoot. So let's summarize the learning points on this one. There's a lot. And we didn't even really dive into whatever Lundberg's problems was. Uh, but uh, there's... I think there's a lot to take home on this one. Uh, so just to kind of rehash the points here. Um, first off, let's talk about that that cardio version. He, here, here's what I would say, Spence. I, I hope you agree with this. Um, you really, you really should stick with uh, unless you have unless you fa unless you have actually found the zebra. You really need to stick with the horse treatment. In other words, uh, you have a wide complex tachycardia. Um, American Heart Association at one point in time has come to the conclusion that the majority of the patient will benefit majority of the patients will benefit from synchronized cardioversion. Now here's the thing I'm saying, treat the horses don't treat zebras, but you have to acknowledge zebras do exist. Yeah. 
And by the way, I was able to see the rhythm because, you know, there's a concern like, well, what if it's like a really, really wide complex tachycardia, you know, indicating like some kind of electrolyte over it. There wasn't here. This was a very, it was your typical wide complex tachycardia. And the patient just died. Like all the data there supports ventricular tachycardia in this case. Yeah. so, yeah, so I think, yeah, th- that's kind of what it comes down to is like, if you are going to vary from the norm, have a really good clinical reason to do it. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're, you're betting, you're, you're taking a risk, uh, against the odds. Yeah. And so don't do that. Yeah. And if you're Bill Lumberg and you do legitimately have a concern about this, you need to voice that concern in a clinical fashion. And I know right. Chris has said this before, but if you if all you can muster is like, I don't know, that like don't don't lead your response with like, I don't know. That's yeah. <laughs> Because then someone's going to be like, yeah, well, then we're not going to vary from the most likely cause because you haven't given me any evidence as to why this is something else. You have not given me evidence as to why this is a zebra. You know, like that's 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 not what you mean. So uh, second thing uh, after that, um, pulling uh, pulling the airway. Uh, again, I think Spencer and I both agreed on, on this one, especially in someone who is just arrested. Uh, pulling the airway probably isn't the best idea. I think sedating this person would have been best uh, because, hey, if they've coded once, they're going to they're very likely to code again. And now you're just kind of one step behind. And I'll also tell you this. Even if they don't code again, guess what's going to happen when they get to the emergency room? They're going to get an airway. Yeah. And so th- this patient's going to wind up sedated with an airway no matter what. Th- this guy, no matter what, live, you know, made it there or not, he was going to wind up sedated with an airway. And most of the hospital sedation options are pretty much the same thing you have. They may have a few more tools here and there, but by and large, a lot of EMS agencies are carrying the same shit. So or sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. a lot yeah. of hospitals oh. are carrying the same shit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, so. I, I know it's a scary thing to go on, but that's where the patient's going to end up. So yeah. you should probably, you know, you should consider doing that too. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, speaking of sedation, yeah. um, I, you know, I think we made a compelling argument for, for sed and fentanyl in this patient. Ketamine might be a good option, um, especially like if they were more hypotensive, but mm-hmm. yeah, there we go. Yeah, I think. And lastly, the 12 lead. The longer you wait post cardiac arrest status, post cardiac arrest, the more accurate the 12 lead ends up being. And it seems like a good number to shoot for is after eight minutes. Right. But, um, yeah, that's the call guys. Uh, wow. This was a big one with a lot of discussion. If you're still here, uh, don't innovate like my brother. Uh, and don't innovate like my brother. (laughs) Uh, thank you everyone again for listening to EMS 2020. We are here with new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to, and actually please do, uh, follow us on EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook. We are at EMS 2020 show on Instagram and email us your tales of success or woe to EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. And with that, we are, we're outie. <laughs> Nothing. All right.